You're listening to Contesting Wrestling. This is a podcast where I, Evan Burke, try to understand why anybody would take the time out of their lives to watch wrestling, right? Because now to some of you, this will be a strange question to ask because you're like, wrestling's great. I don't understand why somebody would have a problem with it. Or wrestling is life. So how can there even be a distinction? Exactly. Many of you would say that. And it's important for you to understand that you're freaks and that you're in a small, small minority that's ridiculed by the rest of society. But surely you already know that inside your heart. However, however, sometimes you freaks are also people that I have known for a long time and respect, like my co-hosts. And you say to yourself, if you're me or most of society... Why uh, Why do these people I respect like this thing that I don't like or respect? And so I'm on a quest to understand what's up with that. Uh, that's, my, that's my formal question is, what's up with this? Why are you doing that? But today, I mean, we're going to get into it. But today we're covering probably one of the most obviously good things that's ever happened in wrestling to any human being. So before we get into that, let my co-hosts introduce themselves. Uh, hi there, my name is Doc Diamondfire. That was that was harsh this week. Man. I'm sorry, man. Yeah. I'm coming back. <laughs> it's been a while. It's, it's weird okay. because it's okay. you seem to have the harshest intros for the episodes where you enjoyed the content the most. I've noticed. It's weird. Well, you know what it is? Here's what it is. Is that I obviously, over time, have developed, you know, a more complex attitude towards wrestling, right? Because I would highly recommend... That is the idea. I would highly recommend to people out there who are coming from my perspective that if you would like to know about wrestling, get two of your oldest and closest friends who are walking encyclopedias about wrestling and think about it deeply (laughs) to bring you on some sort of guided tour of the history of the sport uh, that lasts for, you know, we're closing in on a year now. Uh, it's actually been a little over a year that we've been recording it. So mm-hmm. I need to, for for the sake of the audience, for the sake of those who do not have the privilege of receiving one of these guided tours, I have to pull myself back from the brink. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if I, I have, I might have a more nuanced and interested opinion, and interested, not that it's interesting, I might have a more nuanced opinion of wrestling now, but I have to I have to maintain this position so that people who are coming at this podcast from the anti-wrestling side of things still feel like they have a voice. Well, I'm happy to be one of those tour guides. Uh, like I said, my name is Doc Diamondfire. I've been in professional wrestling about a dozen years or so. Um, I do wrestling, I do commentary, I do ring announcing, I'm also a Twitch streamer and a YouTuber. I'm a, how many things do you have to do before you're just considered a content creator? I think uh, I may have to start embracing some of these newer titles. Uh, in any case... You're an influencer. I'm not quite an influencer yet because nobody's being influenced by me. Uh, that's, that's the step above content creator, mm, I think. Gotcha. I, I see, influencers get paid a lot. Mm. I think that's the real difference. And anyway, that's the perspective I'm bringing on. Um, and uh, well, today we are three. And uh, Ben, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? I'm Dr. Ben Abelson, professor of philosophy at Mercy College and wrestling freak, as Evan so graciously put it. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, I, for all for all of my my harshness and historical issues with wrestling, t- today we are covering 
Rey Mysterio, who has got to be the most obviously talented wrestler who's ever lived. In that any person would watch a, a, a great Rey Mysterio match and be like, holy shit, who is this guy? Yeah, I've, I think I've mentioned it before. Our dear late friend, uh, Ned Vizzini, great author, you know, he, he didn't like wrestling at all, but he always got super excited whenever we put it on and Rey Mysterio was there on TV. <laughs> because you cannot, there is no way to be more of an underdog than Rey Mysterio, right? And there is, to have somebody who is this, like, tiny dude who, you know, is like, what, he's like, what, 175, 180? Like, something like at that? The, at this point, he would have been less. They, they would announce him, and I think this was an exaggeration down, they would announce him at 135. But in the stuff that we were watching, he was probably closer to 145 or 150. In the WWE later, when you see him and he's really muscular, then he's probably 175. But he's a little dude, comparatively. And to have a guy that small who can not only convincingly beat a, a wrestler of really any size, but do so in a way that is thrilling, that is visually exciting. And I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that at the time of Ray's introduction, uh, American audiences had not really seen a ton of high-quality lucha. Definitely not. He was pretty much number two after Conan coming in. Okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah, unless you unless you lived in like South Texas and were privy to the uh, the territories down there and the Indies down there, um, yeah, most of America didn't see any lucha libre in the seventies. They would know who like Mil Mascaras was, who was a big champion in Mexico, who would tour America occasionally, and you know refuse to lose to anybody and. You know, just basically be the mask. It would be like, we have a luchador from the Mexico, Mil Mascaris. And then he'd come out and do a couple of jumps and then he'd leave. Yeah, he was he was the first luchador I ever saw because he would make sporadic WWF appearances. He was so adamant about nobody beating him that he was in the Royal Rumble once and climbed to the top rope and jumped off onto people on the outside of the ring. And then the refs told him, oh, you accidentally eliminated yourself by jumping out of the ring. And he left, putting over nobody. And they actually changed. He was in his 50s. They changed the rules to accommodate him on that. Because in previous Royal Rumbles, in order to be eliminated, someone had to throw you out. I mean, they're always inconsistent about that shit anyway. Anyway, I'm talking more trash about Mil Moscow than I want. You're right, Evan. Almost, yeah. uh, almost nobody in America had seen high-quality Lucha Libre until, um, really, until WCW, well, until ECW decided to bring in a few luchadors, then some Americans saw it, and then WCW decided to sign most of the same luchadors and really gave them a big national platform to, uh, to show their work. WCW was definitely where I first saw Rey Mysterio, which is why, uh, for this first episode on Rey Mysterio, I decided to stick to his WCW work. Now, what is, can we get, can we get a brief overview of the biography of Rey Mysterio? He was trained by his uncle, Rey Mysterio Sr. He was born in San Diego, but he, at a very young age, at the age of 14, started training wrestling in Mexico. His first wrestling name, uh, you know, the name is escaping me in Spanish, but it translates to the hummingbird. And to this day, you'll, if you look at his mask, that's what's on his mask. It's hummingbirds. And that's because, as you can imagine, at 14, he was even much smaller 
Um, the, the only person you could really compare him to now would be like if you see Marco Stunt wrestle, who's like so impossibly smaller than everybody else um, and isn't quite where Ray is where we see him now. He'd more be where Ray was then when he was a younger teenager. Colibri. Hummingbird. Calibri, yes, Calibri. There you go. So this first match that we watch, he's he's what, like nineteen in this? Something like that? Uh, yeah, eighteen or nineteen, I believe. So this is really how I remember Rey Mysterio when I first saw him. Number one, to, teaming with Juventud Guerrera. So in this match, he's teaming with Juventud Guerrera against Psychosis, who we already watched a match against Rey Mysterio from ECW with. Um a long time ago now, yeah. Psychosis and uh, La Parca, the chairman of WCW, which is why he was holding a chair from the December 15th, 1997 episode of Monday Nitro. Uh, La Parca is, uh, La Parca understood what it was to be on American television. Whenever he could, he turned to the camera and started dancing. And as a result, he actually got more over than a lot of the, a lot of the luchadors they would bring in in WCW. The chairman thing was his idea. It's kind of a weird translation thing, but it worked. And it also helped that he was a little bigger than some of the other guys. In In Mexico, where there are a lot fewer, um... I don't know if there are fewer rules, but the rules for copyright infringement are not enforced very well. He comes to the ring to Thriller and does the whole Thriller dance. And the bigger of a star he got, the more elaborate and more people would come with him to do the Thriller dance. It's just great. He is a sports entertainer extraordinaire. And this is the original La Parca. Um, he, uh, when he, he switched from one company to another in Mexico and they gave someone else the La Parca gimmick and he renamed himself LA Park and he still wrestles as LA Park. The second La Parca has passed away. Now, what would you say was, you know, we, we know that American audiences hadn't really seen great Lucha. What would you say was the average wrestling fans awareness of Lucha and what it is and what the style is like, would it have been a complete, like they got wrestling in Mexico? What? Or like, what would it have been in the, in the mid nineties? If you were a wrestling fan at all, you knew of Mexican wrestling. You knew that it was a big deal in Mexico, but you probably didn't know the names of any big luchadors at the time unless you were, well, unless you were Mexican and were in tune with current Mexican culture. If you saw a luchador come in, you could probably identify because of the style of the mask and the way the person was wrestling. Oh, they're wrestling the Mexican style, but that would be it. It also, as you alluded to earlier, Doc, depended on what region of the country you were in. Uh, yeah. When I was a little kid, we went to San Francisco and just San Francisco, you know, um, and right. we went to some random store and they had uh, CMLL action figures. I remember seeing Vampiro Candianeds or whatever it is. Uh, that's great. <laughs> Canadian, uh, whatever. The Canadian vampire was, the Canadian was Vampiro's vampire, right. original gimmick um, and like wrestling coloring books and like all this shit. And I had never heard of any of these people before, but I identified it as wrestling, of course, and so made my parents buy it for me. Um, yeah, it was like uh, in America, it would be like a subculture. It, it was um, it was more popular amongst people who liked like camp when camp was kind of new sure. in the late 70s and so on. People would like go get, uh, you know, badly subtitled El Santo movies and, you know, show them as midnight movies and stuff like that. There was a um, there was a camp store on uh, Avenue A called. Oh, no, First Avenue called It's a Mod, 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 Mod World. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it had a ton of Lucha oh, stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Now, I know that, you know, like the, the lucha style, there wasn't really a lot of high-flying in American wrestling and stuff like that. 
all those moves like the head scissor, the flying head scissors, and the hurricane rana, and whatever other weird twisty tilt a whirl, right tilt a whirl is one of them, that kind of shit. Is that all yeah. also from Lucha? It didn't necessarily all originate in Mexico, but all of those moves are very popular in Lucha. Okay. The Huracan Rana, and um, it's something, something I learned training at Chikara. It was hammered into my head. The Huracan Rana is a very specific move. It is, the, it is, named, it is the Rana of, Huric, of Huracan Ramirez, one guy, Hurricane Ramirez. And it's specifically when you do the backwards uh, head scissors and pull the guy all the way around to the pin. But everything else is some kind of head scissors. Okay. But if you look at American wrestling, even from like the 50s, you'll see someone do a thing that's basically a Hurricane Rana. They didn't call it that, you know. Um, it's just, you know, yeah. something you can do with your body to attack someone, you know. The style is really what got people's attention here in the mid-90s. WCW at the time was on fire. The main, like, their big thing was let's do what the WWF isn't doing. What, are they, what market are they not servicing right now? And they came up with a variety of things that didn't necessarily mesh very well, including using old WWF stars that the WWF didn't have anymore, the Hulk Hogan's and Randy Savage's of the world. But also, hey, how about we get some real Japanese wrestlers and some real Mexican wrestlers and have them wrestle their styles on our television? And so people flipping back and forth between the channels, Raw and Nitro, they'd stop on a match like this that's nonstop action and they wouldn't turn away. Yeah, and I remember Ray and Hoovy just like bouncing around everywhere like just constant movement i had never seen anything like this at all and it blew my mind completely hoovy was just as good as ray um ray eventually uh distanced himself from hoovy in terms of being clearly the best of that whole pack but at the time the two of them were incredibly dynamite uh, i mean the psychosis was great and laparco was a little different than them and none of them stopped moving this whole match that also means none of them sell anything the entire time they're wrestling sure. here it's just crazy move after crazy move after crazy move it's like uh you know i always i like to compare these things to, to to music this is like one of those things where they have five virtuoso guitar players standing there like trading solos for 20 minutes and at no point is that not happening. And like, if that's what you're into or if that's what the event calls for, you know, great. But you're not going to make a hit song out of that. And sure enough, this style didn't get to the top of WCW for several reasons. Um, but it's like, well, th th there are several reasons. I mean, we'll it, talk about that more in the next match, too, I think. Yes. It does seem like that is, you know, a, a danger of the Lucha style is that it can turn into, it can turn into like Cirque du Soleil. Or some sort of like right. athletic kind of showcase as opposed to a wrestling match or the appearance of a contest. I was some of it is that these guys were really young too. You know, they they were young and full of energy. They wanted to show everybody all the moves that they could do. The same thing happens in American wrestling. If you if you look and someday we should watch some like classic lucha libre. The style is recognizable as the same style, but just like in America, when you see the older guys do it to a big crowd, they're moving slower. They're taking less abuse on their bodies, and it's a different kind of psychology. But it's the same kind of like circus style razzle dazzle, <laughs> a little less realism. And that's the thing as we go along with uh, watching Ray's career, we'll see how, you know, athletically he probably becomes a little bit more limited as time goes on, though not that much. But his psychology and his storytelling and everything else just gets better and better. I did notice in this match a few moves that I didn't think had been innovated until later. Uh, Ray does the unprettier 
which became Christian's yeah. finisher a few years it's, later. It's, it's not very pretty when he does it. He doesn't know how to hook it up. He just grabs the guy and drops. Uh, Ray and Hoovy do the poetry in motion that the Hardys would become famous four years later. And I looked it up a couple of places. The, the Hardys are credited with inventing that move, but they did not. Were they doing it in Omega uh, already? You know, that's possible. Maybe they were doing it in Omega already. That's a whole other story. There's a point where um, LaParca and one of the other guys goes off the top rope and it looks like bad. Like It looks like something bad happens. The thing with Hoovy and Psychosis with like that crazy reversal, like one of them's yeah. trying to flip the other and then he, the other flips the other in the air. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I thought it, it ended up okay. For a second, it looked really scary, though. They like did two reversals in midair. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Oh yeah, and it's don't get me wrong. I'm not like criticizing the like, oh dude, they oh, didn't yeah. execute it perfectly. I just saw it happen. I was like, that looks like someone almost died. I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. tell. I, just... I I thought what was more dangerous was Hoovy does a tilt a whirl. I think on psychosis, and Hoovy's so much smaller that he can't really control it and get him all the way around. So he does an impromptu like Michinoku driver. <laughs> he drops him on the back of his head and shoulders instead of like a backbreaker or something like that. And it ends up also okay, but also very scary. <laughs> yeah, they, they look like Street Fighter moves, you know, <laughs> like midair juggle combos and stuff. Also, there's so much. So during so much of this, the commentators are just talking about other shit. Oh, that's fucking just WCW, about man. All the fucking matches, like I, oh my god, they're talking about Bret Hart, who's there, like just after the Montreal Screwjob. Apparently, they talk about Hogan. Like you'll see with every single one of these matches, no matter how important it is, and some of the stuff we're talking about today is like pretty monumental in wrestling history. There is absolutely no fanfare. There's no video package. There's no big interviews before and after. They immediately go to the next thing. They just fucking talk about Hulk Hogan. There aren't even any replays. I was actually I was shocked. This is the first time that I've ever that I've watched any matches on the WWE Network. Where if you go to the chapter that says it's where the match starts, that's actually where all of the relevant information yeah, starts, right. right? Because, and I know I've talked about this before, but I'm going to complain about it again. On the WWE Network, when you go to the start of the match, you then have to rewind to see the video package that is where anybody watching this would start. Yes. Well, I, There's so well, many fucking yeah. things wrong with the network. It's just insane. And like it's I in know yeah. I know that like we're on the precipice of uh, economic catastrophe unlike anything in living memory and and there's a pandemic and all this other shit but like god damn it. Don't make me go to the thing and then have to sit there and hold L2 until it gets but I'm like oh no I've gone too far and then I got to watch the end of right. freaking hey, like you Jake the snake some guy i don't know i'm j i just picked a guy i don't know you know how like in streaming services there's that obvious thing that's great where you watch the first episode of something and then when it's over it will automatically take you to the next episode the, yeah. the network does not do that no. at all like you in fact it's really hard to watch them in order because they'll put the earliest episodes last so it, you've seen this, right? If you want to get to fucking yeah. like yeah, this is ridiculous. January of a year, you got to go through the whole fucking year. And it's just like Vince, like what what is what is the good of violating all of these human rights if you can't even <laughs> build a goddamn app that works right? You know? 
See, this is why their profits are way up. Oh, wait a second. Oh, no, their profits are way up. That's, that's the problem. The joke is all of these complaints are valid, and yet they made way more money this quarter than they thought they were going yep. to. This is, this is like this is the problem with late-stage capitalism. The worse something gets, the more profitable it is somehow. I don't get it. I, I get it enough to be angry about it. Ugh. Anyway, this match uh, oh, ends David. with Hooventud hitting the 450 splash on Psychosis had, for the 1-2-3. had a lot of impact. Yeah, yeah, it was a good one. Oh, Hoovy, though, had some problematic history with the 450 splash later in his career. Yeah, well, he has a, he has a lot of problematic history. You notice the uh, ref in this match, Evan? This. Uh, it's Robinson, right? Of course. Uh, how yeah, yeah. The, the most recognizable... I, I feel the only refs that I can recognize immediately are uh, are him and Aubrey Edwards. I thought we should watch this match first because it was really indicative of how I remembered Mysterio. I didn't realize, like, so the Malenko match is often heralded as, like, Mysterio's second best match in WCW after the Eddie Guerrero Halloween Havoc match, mm. obviously. What I didn't realize is this match for the Cruiserweight title um, at the... 1996 Great American Bash was actually Ray's debut in the company, which shows you how hard it was to get any fucking upward mobility in that company. That one of his most important matches was his debut match. Is this the first Dean Malenko match we've watched? It's the second. You saw him wrestle Chris Jericho. Right. Okay. Remember, he, he was dressed up as a luchador and then he pulled the mask off. Right. Okay. Royal. Okay. Yeah, we have not gone too deep into Dean Malenko. Uh, he's great. I thought this was a fucking oh, yeah. fantastic match. Awesome. I'm really so, glad. I was worried that you were. I was a little worried, too. Because it's so slow in the middle. did lose me in the middle a little bit. I feel like I'm starting to learn enough about wrestling where I can sort of... The first 50% of this match and the last 20% were really great. So the fact that there was like a 30% sort of chunk in the middle and it's not like nothing was happening in that right. in that chunk like uh, but it was it did start to get a little bit too it's good to see a guy get his ass kicked a whole lot because that's important for a story <laughs> right. but there is a point where it starts to really lose me uh, well I, so, I have a lot watching, to say about it. but yeah no, doc you go first watching these two matches in succession like i made the comparison of the lucha match of a, a bunch of guitar virtuosos trading solos dean malenko um is is not that kind of wrestler dean malenko is more like um the famous solid studio musician that's played on all of your favorite albums that holds it down while your favorite guitar virtuoso mm. picks their solo at the right time and that's the dynamic him and ray have Malenko is the kind of wrestler, you know, he's the heel in this match. And he doesn't have a lot of, like, charisma and personality, really. But he knows... The Iceman. He's the Iceman. But he knows how to be a heel nonetheless. And what do you do? You take the crazy high-flying guy that everybody wants to see fly around, and you ground him, and you keep him on the ground, and you make it kind of boring. Kind of boring. Right. You, so like you put him in a bunch of holds so that when he makes his comeback and he does all the flying again, the people are really happy, especially when you, the heel, end up winning and then they really hate you for winning. Nonetheless, the only time he cheated really in that match is the finish. Right. When he put his feet on the ropes. But nonetheless, there is a moment during the heat where the crowd starts chanting boring 
And Malenko realizes, oh, they're not booing me. They're starting to turn against the match because it has been a little bit too boring. And you notice right in that moment, he looks frustrated, releases the hold, picks him up and starts doing some slams and then puts him right back in the hold. Right. And so I I thought that doesn't completely change his strategy. He just is like, we need a little salt and pepper. Exactly. Puts in a little salt and pepper. If you were Daniel Bryan. Or Brian Danielson, he would have said some shit to the crowd as well to acknowledge it. Like, oh, you want boring? It's abdominal stretch time. But that that's where Brian has that other layer on top of the Malenko style. Two things that I noticed about this guy. Uh, one was when he starts to look frustrated, it's really powerful because he doesn't have any other emotions. He, does, he yeah. Because he really just seems like a robot that was built to wrestle. Uh, which it seems like a character that if you pull off is great. Absolutely. Right? Like he sort of yeah, and he, he pulls it off. He reminded me of this is going to sound bad, and I don't mean it in a bad way. He reminded me like if Kurt Angle had no personality. Yeah, no that that's 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 pretty accurate. Yeah. You know the the reason Kurt Angle got into pro wrestling was because he won the gold medal in wrestling. The reason Kurt Angle was such a success immediately is because of how much he connected with the crowd immediately with his crazy personality. And uh, well, you know, you've seen Kurt Angle. I mean, that's it. Malenko sort of he there was something about his physicality that the first word that came to my mind was professional. Kind of where he just seems like he just really see he's like I, if I, it's hard to articulate what specifically he did, but there was just something like there was such confidence yeah. in the moves and such clearly this like deep knowledge of amateur style wrestling that it really yeah like it it was he was more like an assassin like figure than any of the wrestlers I've seen who incorporate that word in their character somehow where he just is yeah like a wrestling machine. Yeah, and Man of a Thousand Holds. The original Man of a Thousand Holds. Him and his brother Joe were a tag team in Japan for years, and they both had like that same style. Uh, and his father, Boris Malenko, trained a bunch of people. The Great Malenko. Dean, of course. Yes, the Great Malenko. Boris Malenko. Uh, yes, that's where that comes from. And um, yeah, great. All, all of them could rip your head off without blinking. and uh, But they wouldn't. I was going unless. unless um, unless they were wrestling you. Right. I was going to say about Angle, uh, it's interesting because this is thought of as one of Ray's best matches in WCW, and uh, we'll watch it eventually. Um, his Possibly his best match in WWE is his match with Kurt Angle. And this dynamic between him and like a super technical guy I think works really, really well. Well, because it's it, it works not only for the storyline of getting to see two people who have such radically different styles wrestle, but it's also just visually really interesting. It's really, you know, you you kind of hit on it earlier where this match basically was just alternating between Malenko doing these painful, real-looking holds and Ray sort of escaping that and getting to, like, fly around and hurl himself at the dude, and it just it created a really nice balance uh, that could have been a few minutes shorter you know if i'm getting picky but overall yeah i thought it was i thought it really really worked to uh to just stay interesting on the time thing you know nowadays like they gave they gave the match a good amount of time right nowadays if they took two guys who were you know maybe used to wrestling short matches and they're like you have a little more time what would they do they'd put a bunch more moves in 
that's not what Adin Malenko did, right? He stretched <laughs> out the heat. He stretched out the slow part of the match, not adding more moves because adding more moves um, is, you know, is not going to make any of those moves more impactful and more exciting. He didn't want to be part of an exhibition. He wanted to, he wanted his match to be seen as a championship wrestling bout, which was what it, it was, you know, because this was for the Cruiserweight Championship. Now, unlike that, the other match, the announcers were mostly talking about this match during the match. Mike Tenay, it's kind of funny um, because I thought Ray actually really held up well against Malenko in the, like, technical stuff at the beginning. And Tanay says, like, oh, yeah, Ray, you know, he's mostly a high flyer, but he can do technical stuff. And vice versa. Dean Malenko can do high flying. Not as true. <laughs> I would imagine in a lot of Ray's matches, but um, I, I feel like I've seen other other matches kind of like this where you've got a guy who's maybe not as known for the technical wrestling side up against a technical person who there's sort of an undercurrent of I I need to prove that I can also do this. I need to prove that I'm not just a, a, a weaponized gymnast like I can actually right. do the holds and and the traditional style of wrestling. On the commentary thing, this might be the first match that you've ever heard Dusty Rhodes on commentary. Oh, he's great. He's great. <laughs> this is what I want. This is what I want. I, oh, I, I would watch a terrible, terrible match if it's Dusty Rhodes and Macho Man on commentary. <laughs> sure. That would be, that's the, that's oh, the dream man. team right there. Uh, Dusty did commentary in WCW for a few years on and off, and he was always fantastic. He always knew how to keep up his incredibly thick accent and way of talking, but he also so profoundly knew what he was talking about all the time, even if he didn't know about the style, that uh, that there was just respect there. Where, you know, is, respect. where is he from? Texas. He is a Texas okay. guy. Because that's and, not uh, a, I mean, it's not. It's an accent that is unique to him. I would not describe that as a Texas oh yeah. accent. Like you, you see people doing, everyone has their dusty impression uh, because his is always had such a unique delivery. Um, he was, he was a big promo guy from when he started wrestling in the seventies until he died. He was the coach at the performance center teaching guys how to do promos uh, when yeah. he died. Yeah. If you will. I mean, and this. I feel like he is. It's one of these things where it feels like he's doing an impression of somebody, and I'm just too young to know who it is. <laughs> you know, it feels like there's like right. some, or, you know, or like it's a, a lot of like great like you know characters or whatever like started off as like impressions of celebrity. You know, you know, and like we just we now just think of it as Chief Wiggum because nobody our age knows who the yeah. fuck Edward G. Robinson is. Right. And I barely do. And I just know because they made that joke on The Simpsons. But that, then, you, then you Google it and you're like, oh, yeah, okay. If there's anybody he would be imitating, it would be Muhammad Ali. But Muhammad Ali got most of his shtick from Gorgeous George in the first place. <laughs> I was going to say a quick side note. I know that they are, they ha uh, they are rebooting Animaniacs. Uh, and I hope that it does a good job because I, I, I feel like a lot of – I feel like if it wasn't for me watching – some of those Warner Brothers cartoons as a child, I would have had a lot less knowledge of the previous decades Definitely. of like, and like there's all these movie references and stuff that I am too young to get, but luckily they taught me what those things were. Oh, the, the Animaniacs were great because they talked about old Hollywood. And of course, 10 year old kids didn't know what, what still don't know what happened in old Hollywood. And like, yeah, even if you don't know who like Jerry Lewis is, you see the guy doing the Jerry Lewis impression. And eventually you find out who Jerry Lewis is because of that kind of thing. I'll, I'll never forget when I was, um, I don't know, like 20, maybe. And the first time I saw Apocalypse Now, and I had this thought of like, 
this is just like that episode of Eek the Cat. I know what you mean. You see something and you're like, oh, that's what the Looney Tunes were doing. Yeah. Okay. They also, uh, the Looney Tunes specifically showed all of us classical music. Oh, yeah. Too, you know, and that's that they just started making new Looney Tunes. They're doing, you know, um, the, the decree is, and it's actually been for a while, that they're taking all the guns away. But all the other cartoon violence, they say, is grandfathered in because kids are not chasing each other around the playground with comically large stacks of TNT. I, I wish I had the power to create a cartoon that my number one old man hang up is that I'm worried that just nobody's going to listen to jazz 50 years from now, that jazz will like completely pass out of cultural memory. And that's terror. And that is especially terrifying to me because uh, I will die on the jazz is America's greatest art form, old man Hill forever. And uh, I, would, I would make a cartoon that would also teach children about jazz history. Um, Sounds good. Like Cowboy Bebop. Cowboy Bebop just has jazz. It doesn't really teach yeah, you anything about yeah. jazz. So speaking of references, an, uh, one really big difference between the WCW and WWF um, presentation at this time is that Mike Tenay straight up references the AAA promotion and talks about how a couple... Now, if Ray were to win the title, that like two... Um, Member two wrestlers from the AAA promotion would have WCW titles, and WCW would reference other promotions throughout the world in a way that WWF did not, and still really doesn't. Yeah, only only uh, only when they have uh, some, I don't know. They will occasionally reference that some of their wrestlers had been in New Japan, but not really like on Raw as a promotional tactic, but more like in their documentary footage, being like this person was in Japan, whereas. Uh, WCW totally would use these like this guy's been to New Japan the last three years. He must have some new tricks, you know, they were embedded much better, by the way. Yeah, they were embedded in the larger wrestling community, whereas WWF tried really hard to make it seem like they were the only game in town. It feels like they're still kind of doing it like it feels like they're still sort of trying to be like a walled garden of wrestling. It worked. It worked a lot better in the 80s. Man, they, they just like, um, they made a big deal. They just finally put some independent wrestling on the network shows from uh, leagues that they've made deals with. And I like, I looked at it and it's like, it's one show from four different leagues each and a couple of compilations of like the best of Keith Lee on the indies, which I mean, cool. I really like Keith Lee, but this isn't really putting the indies on your network. This is just more of the same that they've been doing. So um, this match ends pretty much with... Uh, Mysterio hits what would later be known as the West Coast Pop, the springboard Hurricane Rana. Malenko kicks out. Um, Ray goes for another Hurricane Rana, which Malenko reverses into a vicious power bomb, and then he puts his feet on the ropes and gets the one, two, three. And Malenko is still the cruiserweight champion. I think they mentioned he was like the second ever cruiserweight champion after beating Otani, who had won the tournament. Something like that. I know that they had introduced the cruiserweight championship like that year. Um, as uh, as a way to differentiate themselves from the WWF, who had gone so hard into like big guys and you know bulky moves, and later the WWF would uh, introduce their light heavyweight title, which was not nearly as effective. They were not because they weren't willing to have the guys wrestle a different style. They ended up like having the you know they ended up giving it to like one real Japanese wrestler, Takamichinoku, and then have him feud endlessly with Jerry Lawler's son. Brian Christopher, who wrestled like, you know, Midwest uh, Memphis style, very like grounded and not very exciting. Meanwhile, you turn to WCW and the Luchadors are doing their stuff and Dean Malenko is doing his stuff. And uh, there was no contest. The word, the term light heavyweight 
doesn't it makes me think of like when I've seen fat free half and half and my brain rejects its existence. <laughs> the only reason these these weight divisions have names, I mean, not even just in wrestling, but just in general, is because it sounds better than just listing the weights that they represent. That makes sense. Especially yeah. in wrestling, when they usually don't actually represent that much. But, like, in boxing, for example, there'll be, like, seven or eight weight classes. Or in UFC, they used to have, I don't know, like, nine weight classes. I think they cut one or two of them down to absorb into each other. Um, and they all just needed a name, so they'd be like light heavyweight, heavyweight, and super heavyweight. But I think because you don't, yeah, because then there's like several other ways to describe lighter and lighter people up until you're you're fighting at 115 pounds. Um, I think yeah. To Evan's point though, cruiserweight sounds a lot better than light heavyweight or featherweight or straw weight. I think the 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 smaller women in UFC are uh, the straw. I, oh, we're gonna I have our one oh five is straw weight. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna have our teeny tiny wiggles weight champion now. Right. Exactly. But what are you gonna do if you're gonna fight other people who weigh a hundred and five pounds? Some of those straw weights, like Rose Namajunas and shit, like are fucking hardcore as hell. Oh, they're as good fighters as anybody else, but you know, they're also tiny. So one last thing about Dean Malenko. The, the year after this, 1997, Pro Wrestling Illustrated was the most popular wrestling magazine that covered um, a variety of wrestling promotions. This is how Doc and I learned about ECW and Japan and Mexico and, and everything when we were kids and the territories and everything. Um, so in 97, there just wasn't any. So PWI also does a top 500 wrestlers every year, which is fairly influential. In 97, there was just no clear number number one because everything was such in flux at the time. Um, so they just made Dean Malenko number one. Despite him, you know, not being anywhere near like the most popular wrestler, but their readership loved him and his matches were just so fucking good that they were like, yeah, we'll just make him number one this year. They specifically said, since there's no clear number one, we're going to give it to who we believe is the best technical wrestler in the world right now. Looking back on it, they probably should have given number one either to the Giant, which they were, uh, they didn't want to give the Giant number one because it was his first year in the business. And the PWI 500 is normally an in kayfabe list. And all the Giant did all year was win the title and just beat everybody. Um, or they could have given it to Mitsuharu Misawa, but they didn't want to give it yet to a Japanese wrestler in a magazine that was almost exclusively read by Americans who had no idea who he was. They finally gave it to a Japanese wrestler a couple of years ago when it was unquestionable that Kazuchika Okada had the best year in wrestling. One of the best years in the history of wrestling, really. And they did a whole thing in that issue apologizing for not featuring Japanese wrestlers more prominently over the years, etc. Here, this year in the PWI 500, they're just going to straight up allow women um, usually they'd put a woman here or there if they fought like primarily men, but with the prevalence of intergender wrestling and so many women that are wrestling a lot of men, they're like, we're just gonna, we're just gonna take into account the same things we'd take account for anybody else, you know, win loss record exposure, et cetera, et cetera. Yo, uh, I want Asuka to be number one this year. Yeah. Or I, Sasha, I'm, but no, probably no, no, Asuka. it's not, it's not like that. They're taking women who also wrestle men. Because they oh, are okay, going to still okay. publish their separate list of 100, I think it's 100 now, women's wrestlers who primarily gotcha. wrestle women. Gotcha. Um, it's a step in the right direction. I mean, what do you want from a magazine, which is kind of an antiquated way to get your information in the first place? Uh, this is, I thought of this question, uh, and it's not really related to anything, but 
so at some point, maybe in like the early 20th century or something, um, was anybody doing child wrestling? Was anybody making kids get in there and wrestle for people's enjoyment? Well, Ray uh, was Ray 14 was when he 14. started. That's that's very yes. true. Yes, uh, there was there was Matt Rats. Do you remember Matt Rats? Matt ben? Rats. Oh. <laughs> Hold on, uh, I can't think of any details. Let well, me, let me, we ha- oh, let me we quickly to Google this that. We have to look oh, this. Okay. I will I will cut all of. I will cut yeah, well, this weight. So uh, while while Doc is looking that up, we I will talk when we when we talk about stardom and like modern Japanese women's wrestling. The women do like start kind of disturbingly young in these promotions, especially the ones like stardom that like aren't like hyper sexualized uh, in an explicit way, but are in like subtle ways, like the kind of camera angles they use and stuff like that. That makes it like some fairly uncomfortable uh, in some cases. But I'll make you watch one of those matches to make you uncomfortable. That is that's deeply (laughs) uncomfortable. Yeah. And I love uh, stardom. Don't get me wrong. It's 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 awesome. I usually skip the match. It, usually, like, the first match on the card will be the super young girls, and I usually skip those because it is disturbing. Okay, I found, I found one article on Matt Rats. It was in uh, 2001. It failed, um, and some of the names included Harry Smith, Natty Neidhart, uh, T.J. Wilson, Jack Evans, Renee Dupree, and Teddy Hart. Um... What? Almost none of them were 18 at the time. <laughs> but they weren't like children. They were like teenagers. I believe they were teenagers. This isn't a very comprehensive article. I'm not going to plug it. I'm, I'm trying to find more information. It was a concept that tried and failed. So it's not like there's a million things about it. Yeah, I, like, and I, I feel like, I mean, obviously we have no, I've done no research and we have no uh, factual basis for this. But I definitely feel like, there, in, there was like some Dickensian shit happening in like at, at at some point in the 1800s where people were just making the kids get in there and, <laughs> yeah, and fight yeah, sure. for for everybody's amusement. I think that's really what I think that's what I was picturing. I think I was picturing like <laughs> right. the Charles, yeah, like, not necessarily the, professional wrestling. That would be more of a straight up sideshow. Yeah, and probably less wrestling and more just like fighting. Now that we've established that, Matt, I will say, Matt Rats, we are gonna. We Eric are going to get was involved. We are going to get more deep oh, into that at some point. Well, yeah. someone who looks like a child once their face was revealed is in this match. Um. Oh, we watched one more match for this episode. We watched Rey Mysterio and Conan, who we've seen Conan several times on Lucha Underground, but I think this is the first time Evan's gotten to see Conan wrestle. Oh, this is the same guy. I like didn't yeah, even fucking put guy. that together. Conan. Yeah, 20 oh, okay. years previous, you oh, know, wow. back when he could Already work. over the hill though. Already kind of over Already the not, yeah, not yeah. what he was. But yeah, Ray, Ray and Conan against uh, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall of the Outsiders and NWO. Oh, at their Outsideriest. Yes, in a mask versus hair match where Ray's mask was on the line and did you recognize Miss Elizabeth? Her was... hair was on the line. Okay. She was the woman who was there with Nash and Hall. Right, She's, she was uh some she was like um uh, she was Randy, Randy Savage's valet. Right. Right. Yeah, okay, yeah. 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 The the first lady of pro wrestling in the 80s as they called her. She did the thing that she did best, stand there and look concerned the whole time. Yeah, so this is now, from Super Brawl 9, well into like the well, not not well into the dark period of WCW, but 
on the way, for sure. The decline of WCW. Yeah, 99. Everything had already started to really go south. People thought it was bottoming out, and then the next year happened. I had never seen this match before, because I wasn't keeping up with WCW by now, by this point. This is a big deal, the ma- the mask law, right? Because I was kind of confused at the end from what I understand of the importance of masks to luchadors. Uh and then I also noticed right away, is this is this like into Scott Hall's drinking problem? Yes. Because he's clearly he, drunk. He's, dude, he looks so bad compared to like, I mean, we did, oh, yeah. uh, you know, we did some episodes that he was in recently, like within the last couple months where I was like, man, this guy's fucking good looking guy. And he comes out here and I'm just like, oh, you are you are somebody's drunk uncle who is getting inappropriate at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Incredibly, he still works the match pretty damn well. Uh, he would have. He was one of the greatest workers of all time. But as soon as his decline started to happen, he started to just just lean on what he what he could do. And I don't know. It's just so sad to watch him because as as big of a star as he was, he could have been the guy if he had hung on for a while longer. And I don't know. Eh, I'm a big fan, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I feel the same way. But uh, apparently, I, I read up on it. Taking Ray's mask off was Hall's idea. And I believe that he had good intentions. The idea, you know, the way he pitched it to Ray was, look, you have a great face for TV. People should see your face. You can do a lot more with it. The reason why I think he really did have those good intentions is that Nash and Hall sell hardcore for Ray this whole match especially Nash bumps huge and you know Ray is really believable in taking them down but they help that a lot they really put him over hard despite the fact that he loses the match yeah one of the secrets to Nash and Hall's success is that despite that they were such big guys and that their moves looked like they were huge bullies they would sell for anybody because they know that's where the money is that's what people want to see they want to see the bad guys in trouble you know um (laughs) Scott Hall once said uh, when he when he was uh, in the WWF, like he was talking to Shawn Michaels and there was a you know, there was a time where, you know, big guys didn't want to sell for stuff. And like Sean asked him, OK, so what can and Sean was considered a little guy at six foot one, 227 pounds. Um, and he was asking him, well, what can I do to you to make you like wobbly and like almost off your feet? And, and Scott Hall is like, just punch me. And it was such a relief. It's not like we have to do the double drop kick into the double shoulder block, which was what the Rockers used to have to do for the Warlord to take a damn bump, who wasn't that much bigger than Scott Hall. But Scott Hall knew, and Kevin Nash knew. I don't care how big you are. If someone pops you in the eye, you start selling your eye. Like, oh, no, I got hit in the eye. And if you don't do that, you're just killing the match. Especially, like, Ray's uh, comeback in this match. Like, he hits this springboard drop kick right in Nash's face. And Nash sells it yeah. as he should, like he got thrown out of an airplane. It's great. Right. It was great. Uh, so, of course, uh, the whole match eventually leads up to uh, leads up to the big the big Ray unmasking. Though. Right. So the actual finish um, is uh, Liz distracts the ref. Um, Luger takes out Conan from outside. Um, Ray's pinning uh, Nash. Hall breaks the pin, gives him a nasty outsider's edge, as it was called by then, uh, formerly the Razor's Edge, and then just drags Nash on top of him. So Nash pins Ray while he himself is completely unconscious, right? So wins through no fault of his own. 
which right. still protects Ray. There's a moment where the ref is distracted, and Ray and Ray pins Nash for an amount of time that clearly would have been a three count. Right. 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 Like and and like so it's like he he wins in the eyes of the audience and also shows like the 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 bad guys they can't beat them without cheating. Yeah, he gets the visual pinfall as they call it. Um yeah, and and right, and there's so much cheating, right? Liz is involved, Lex Luger is out there with his broken arm getting into it. Uh so then they do the actual unmasking, which I thought was really good. Like Ray he looks like while he still has the mask on, he looks more upset than any person I've ever seen before. Like and his his lip is quivering. He spits defiantly at the outsiders as Conan is um, unlacing the mask. Real, the drama of it is really great in that moment. And I wonder how much of that, I mean, might have been a real thing, right? Because I... I... Definitely. My impression, uh, which might not be real based in reality, but my impression of this was like, did they come to Ray and like make him some kind of offer that he felt he couldn't refuse? Was he sort of trapped in this moment of like, I need to do this for my career on American television, even though because it like his worry to me looks real. Like, yeah. it looks like he yeah, is yeah, just yeah. like, oh, no, he I was, am, like, destroying my reputation back home. He was under contract to WCW. Yeah. They're like, they had the authority to unmask him. Now, WCW at the time had developed such a horrible reputation. And since it went out of business, uh, like, two years later, pretty much everybody, even in Mexico, forgave him when he put his mask back on, which is almost completely unheard of in Lucha Libre. Yeah. But they were like, well, he didn't lose it in Mexico. It was this WCW stuff that treated a lot of our guys badly. So that was that. Plus, when he went to the WWE, they wanted him to have his mask on because, of course, they did. They could sell masks to the kids. He could be a superhero. All of that good and stuff. And I think beyond that, like, he was definitely upset about it. He did not want to do it at all. However... He probably, at least part of him, was thinking, you know, maybe Scott Hall is right. You know, I've been this fucking awesome performer for years now, and I'm still kind of in the same position that I was in before. Maybe if I take off the mask, I will get a main event run or something like that. It didn't happen. They ended up teaming him with Conan and a couple of other Mexican guys, and they became the... Oh, and Billy Kidman, who was not a Mexican guy, and they became the filthy animals. Yeah. Oh, dear. Did how so like how did like the 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 luchador the the council of the council of elders of luchadors I imagine that's the official title of that how 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 was their reaction? Well, at first it was like you know okay a guy lost his mask fine that happens all the time you know in Mexico it's a big deal. Um, the real the real question is like I said earlier is when he decided to put it back on they just sort of accepted it, which they don't do very often. I remember hearing some rumor that he got jumped. By some guys in Tijuana. Oh, I'm sure he got like some that. heat. <laughs> I heard some rumors too, but it was like, oh, if all of that was true, how come he was on tour with the WWE that whole time? We're going to cover the, like, the end of his run in WCW and the beginning of his run in WWE and him putting the mask on, back on and stuff in the premium episode in more depth. Yeah. So Patreon subscribers, check it out. Yeah, it's going to be good. Well, I think I think that's uh we uh, unless we've got some final thoughts. 
Well, Rey Mysterio in WCW was uh, was really great. Um, everybody who saw him knew that, uh, and WCW didn't really know what to do about it. That, those are my final thoughts. A couple more things. I mean, we didn't talk about Conan much. I said he was like kind of already over the hill at this point. He does do his little rolling lariat thing that's kind of cool, but really he very quickly after joining WCW, um, I don't know, just lost his, his fire for it. Um, Maybe for good reason. I don't know. He became more of kind of a producer, and he was responsible for bringing all the other luchadors in. I think he was doing a lot more uh, behind the scenes by then. Um, but the last thing I want to... Yeah, uh, Doc, do you have something oh, on yeah, that? No, he was the liaison between AAA and WCW. Most of the luchadors coming in were directly doing business with Conan, not with WCW. Eventually, they started doing business with directly with WCW. But, you know, I think he greased the wheels a little bit uh, uh, in terms of, like, getting the foreign guys to be able to wrestle with America, uh, to wrestle in America. And he got a lot of guys into WCW making that WCW money, even if they weren't used very well. So we talked about it earlier in the episode, but I just wanted to reiterate that at the end of this match... Nothing happens like the, the, the dramatic reveal of, of Ray's face like that's really done well. And then 30 seconds later, they're on to the next match. And, you know, like WWE gets a lot of flack for having like too many video packages and too many replays and like filling time with this kind of stuff. But at the same time, like it's very important to the WWE that certain moments are memorable and. In order to do that, you kind of have to pad those moments with a lot of, um, you know, other like B kind of content uh, to make them stand out as important. At least like have somebody stop and be like, wow, that just happened. Let's sit there and absorb that because it was impactful. Yeah, or like an interview, you know, maybe the an interviewer tries to talk to Ray and he's like not having it or something like that. Anything. And, and it's the real problem with WCW is they didn't know how to create those moments, really. You know, every once in a while they'd get lucky and something would be memorable on its own. But they didn't know how to produce uh, great memories the way WWE has been able to. It's kind of like how, you know, one of my biggest beefs, if you watch horror movies or something like that, is like zombie movies, is that there's very rarely a scene where people stop and just like kind of take in what's happened so far. And just that sounds like that would be a thing that would destroy the plot. But sometimes it's important to see characters be like, man, this is fucked up. What just happens? I need to like, I'm not doing OK right now and then carry on with things after that. It's fine. But like, yeah, stop, in, in wrestling, especially, I feel like if you just move on, you know, I don't know. At least it was better than the WWF who fucking scraped Owen Hart's dead body off the mat and then sent two more people out to have a match right afterwards. Really? They didn't. I don't. I don't think he was dead in the ring. I believe he died within the hour. I thought that he died on the way. Actually, that he was already dead when he hit the ring post. I'm not sure. No, he was. He didn't. He wasn't. I thought he had a heart attack in midair or something like that. I've never heard that. No. No, but I didn't. I didn't watch the dark side of the ring. I, I couldn't. Don't, make I don't myself. remember what they said in the dark side. That, no, but no. it was in the dark side where they talked about how like his blood was still on the fucking canvas. Yes, and they his just blood was still kept on the, canvas. the kept the show going. Yeah, they have that show on the network, heavily edited. There was a debate when the network. Uh, started up should they put that show on the network and they decided well we're going to cut all of the offending stuff out 
uh, for completionist sake and put the rest. The show with the very unfortunate title Over the Edge. Oh, man. Yeah. I remember not ordering that one for one reason or another. And I was watching the pay-per-views at that time, which is just for one reason or another, wasn't watching this month's one. Anyway, Rey Mysterio. <laughs> yeah. A shining, yeah, a shining light in the, in the darkness that was much of wrestling for most of the 80s and 90s. And, and well, really one of, the only, one of the only wrestlers before we even started this podcast that I would have said, like, oh, well, that guy obviously is cool. Like, obviously, that guy's obviously doing great shit. Yeah. You're probably uh, going to get really frustrated when we start talking about his WWE stuff. Oh, uh, I'm the sure. Next episode we do. On it. <laughs> I'm sure. So yeah, if you um if you enjoyed this episode of Contesting Wrestling, you should check us out on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/ContestingWrestling, where we put out an extra episode every week, five dollars a month. Uh, there is also a one dollar thank you tier, where if you if you don't want to go the full five bucks, which hey, totally understandable, you don't get the bonus episodes, but you do get to hear the main feed episodes in advance. At least normally you do. We've have it's been a tough summer but it's coming back um we're gonna wind up probably doing about four episodes total on ray so uh you know it'll be two main feed episodes and two premium episodes uh so if you dig it you should check us out it's good stuff um also if you donate five dollars to any number of the important organizations including some of the ones that you may find in the show notes of this very episode take a screenshot of your donation receipt and send that to us we will still send you a link to the premium episode so you can hear them. So, yeah, give either us $5 or somebody who is, frankly, far more deserving of $5, $5, and then you get the premium episodes either way. And, like, if there's a cause you believe in that isn't one of the things we've listed, we'll take that into consideration as well. Yeah, and now if it's, like, a dumb cause, if you're just like, look, I gave $5 to help build more racist computers we're gonna be like no no that's not we don't want that okay or if you're gonna be like i really need i donated five dollars to me expanding my classic beanie baby collection also no that's not important sorry i'm sorry if that's hard for you to deal with Uh, uh, follow us on Twitter at ContestingW. Let us know how you feel about this or just things. Also things. That's, those are important as well. This has been Contesting Wrestling. We love you.